Welcome back, SCOTUS fans. This episode, we continue with the second half of Obergefell v. Hodges. And remember, since I don't include any citations when I read opinions, I always include a direct link to the actual court document in the episode description. And now, on with the show. As this court held in Lawrence, same-sex couples have the same right as opposite-sex couples to enjoy intimate association. Lawrence invalidated laws that made same-sex intimacy a criminal act, and it acknowledged that when sexuality finds an overt expression in intimate conduct with another person, the conduct can be but one element in a personal bond that is more enduring. A third basis for protecting the right to marry is that it safeguards children and families and thus draws meaning from related rights of child-rearing, procreation, and education. The court has recognized these connections by describing the varied rights as a unified whole. The right to marry, establish a home, and bring up children is a central part of the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause. Under the laws of the several states, some of marriage's protections for children and families are material, but marriage also confers more profound benefits. By giving recognition and legal structure to their parents' relationship, marriage allows children to understand the integrity and closeness of their own family and its concord with other families in their community and in their daily lives. Marriage also affords the permanency and stability important to children's best interests. As all parties agree, many same-sex couples provide loving and nurturing homes to their children, whether biological or adopted, and hundreds of thousands of children are presently being raised by such couples. Most states have allowed gays and lesbians to adopt, either as individuals or as couples, and many adopted and foster children have same-sex parents. This provides powerful confirmation from the law itself that gays and lesbians can create loving, supportive families. Excluding same-sex couples from marriage thus conflicts with the central premise of the right to marry. Without the recognition, stability, and predictability marriage offers, their children suffer the stigma of knowing their families are somehow lesser. They also suffer the significant material costs of being raised by unmarried parents, relegated through no fault of their own to a more difficult and uncertain family life. The marriage laws at issue here thus harm and humiliate the children of same-sex couples. That is not to say the right to marry is less meaningful for those who do not or cannot have children. An ability, desire, or promise to procreate is not and has not been a prerequisite for a valid marriage in any state. In light of precedent protecting the right of a married couple not to procreate, it cannot be said the court or the states have conditioned the right to marry on the capacity or commitment to procreate. The constitutional marriage right has many aspects, of which childbearing is only one. Fourth, and finally, 
This court's cases and the nation's traditions make clear that marriage is a keystone of our social order. Alexis de Tocqueville recognized this truth on his travels through the United States almost two centuries ago. Quote, There is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is so much respected as in America. When the American retires from the turmoil of public life to the bosom of his family, he finds in it the image of order and peace. He afterwards carries that image with him into public affairs. Unquote. In Maynard v. Hill, 1888, the court echoed Tocqueville, explaining that marriage is the foundation of the family and of society, without which there would be neither civilization nor progress. Marriage, the Maynard court said, has long been a great public institution giving character to our whole civil polity. This idea has been reiterated even as the institution has evolved in substantial ways over time, superseding rules related to parental consent, gender, and race, once thought by many to be essential. For that reason, just as a couple vows to support each other, so does society pledge to support the couple offering symbolic recognition and material benefits to protect and nourish the union. Indeed, while the states are, in general, free to vary the benefits they confer on all married couples, they have throughout our history made marriage the basis for an expanding list of governmental rights, benefits, and responsibilities. These aspects of marital status include taxation, inheritance and property rights, rules of intestate succession, spousal privilege in the law of evidence, hospital access, medical decision-making authority, adoption rights, the rights and benefits of survivors, birth and death certificates, professional ethics rules, campaign finance restrictions, workers' compensation benefits, health insurance, child custody, support, and visitation rules. Valid marriage under state law is also a significant status for over a thousand provisions of federal law. The states have contributed to the fundamental character of the marriage right by placing that institution at the center of so many facets of the legal, and social order. There is no difference between same and opposite-sex couples with respect to this principle, yet by virtue of their exclusion from that institution, same-sex couples are denied the constellation of benefits that the states have linked to marriage. This harm results in more than just material burdens. Same-sex couples are consigned to an instability many opposite-sex couples would deem intolerable in their own lives. As the state itself makes marriage all the more precious by the significance it attaches to it, exclusion from that status has the effect of teaching that gays and lesbians are unequal in important respects. It demeans gays and lesbians for the state to lock them out of a central institution of the nation's society.
same-sex couples, too, may aspire to the transcendent purposes of marriage and seek fulfillment in its highest meaning. The limitation of marriage to opposite-sex couples may long have seemed natural and just, but its inconsistency with the central meaning of the fundamental right to marry is now manifest. With that knowledge must come the recognition that laws excluding same-sex couples from the marriage right imposed stigma and injury of the kind prohibited by our basic charter. Objecting that this does not reflect an appropriate framing of the issue, the respondents refer to Washington v. Glucksburg, 1997, which called for a careful description of fundamental rights. They assert the petitioners do not seek to exercise the right to marry, but rather a new and non-existent right to same-sex marriage. Glucksburg did insist that liberty under the Due Process Clause must be defined in a most circumscribed manner, with central reference to specific historical practices. Yet while that approach may have been appropriate for the asserted right there involved— physician-assisted suicide, it is inconsistent with the approach this court has used in discussing other fundamental rights, including marriage and intimacy. Glucksburg did insist that liberty under the Due Process Clause must be defined in a most circumscribed manner, with central reference to specific historical practices. Yet, while that approach may have been appropriate for the asserted right there involved, physician-assisted suicide, it is inconsistent with the approach this court has used in discussing other fundamental rights, including marriage and intimacy. Loving did not ask about a right to interracial marriage. Turner did not ask about a right of inmates to marry. And Zablocki did not ask about a right of fathers with unpaid child support duties to marry. Rather, each case inquired about the right to marry in its comprehensive sense, asking if there was a sufficient justification for excluding the relevant class from the right. That principle applies here. If rights were defined by who exercised them in the past, then received practices could serve as their own continued justification, and new groups could not invoke rights once denied. This court has rejected that approach, both with respect to the right to marry and the rights of gays and lesbians. The right to marry is fundamental as a matter of history and tradition, but rights come not from ancient sources alone. They rise, too, from a better informed understanding of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains urgent in our own era. Many who deem same-sex marriage to be wrong reach that conclusion based on decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises, and neither they nor their beliefs are disparaged here. But when that sincere personal opposition becomes enacted law and public policy, the necessary consequence is to put the imprimatur of the state itself on an exclusion that soon demeans or stigmatizes those whose own liberty is then denied.
Under the Constitution, same-sex couples seek in marriage the same legal treatment as opposite-sex couples, and it would disparage their choices and diminish their personhood to deny them this right. The right of same-sex couples to marry, that is part of the liberty promised by the 14th Amendment, is derived, too, from that amendment's guarantee of the equal protection of the laws. The Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause are connected in a profound way, though they set forth independent principles. Rights implicit in liberty and rights secured by equal protection may rest on different precepts and are not always co-extensive, yet in some instances each may be instructive as to the meaning and reach of the other. In any particular case, one clause may be thought to capture the essence of the right in a more accurate and comprehensive way, even as the two clauses may converge in the identification and definition of the right. This interrelation of the two principles furthers our understanding of what freedom is and must become. The court's cases touching upon the right to marry reflect this dynamic. In Loving, the court invalidated a prohibition on interracial marriage under both the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. The court first declared the prohibition invalid because of its unequal treatment of interracial couples. It stated, There can be no doubt that restricting the freedom to marry solely because of racial classifications violates the central meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. With this link to equal protection, the court proceeded to hold the prohibition offended central precepts of liberty. To deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes, classifications so directly subversive of the principle of equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment, is surely to deprive all the state citizens of liberty without due process of law. The reasons why marriage is a fundamental right became more clear and compelling from a full awareness and understanding of the hurt that resulted from laws barring interracial unions. The synergy between the two protections is illustrated further in Zablocki. There, the court invoked the Equal Protection Clause as its basis for invalidating the challenged law, which, as already noted, barred fathers who were behind on child support payments from marrying without judicial approval. The equal protection analysis depended in central part on the court's holding that the law burdened a right of fundamental importance. It was the essential nature of the marriage right, discussed at length in Zablocki, that made apparent the law's incompatibility with requirements of equality. Each concept, liberty and equal protection, leads to a stronger understanding of the other. Indeed, in interpreting the Equal Protection Clause, the court has recognized that new insights and societal understandings can reveal unjustified inequality within our most fundamental institutions that once 
passed unnoticed and unchallenged. To take but one period, this occurred with respect to marriage in the 1970s and 1980s, notwithstanding the gradual erosion of the doctrine of coverture, invidious sex-based classifications in marriage remained common through the mid-20th century. These classifications denied the equal dignity of men and women. One state's law, for example, provided in 1971 that the husband is the head of the family and the wife is subject to him. Her legal, civil existence is merged in the husband, except so far as the law recognizes her separately, either for her own protection or for her benefit. Responding to a new awareness, the court invoked equal protection principles to invalidate laws imposing sex-based inequality on marriage. Like Loving and Zablocki, these precedents show the Equal Protection Clause can help to identify and correct inequalities in the institution of marriage, vindicating precepts of liberty and equality under the Constitution. Other cases confirm this relation between liberty and equality. In MLB v. SLJ, the court invalidated, under due process and equal protection principles, a statute requiring indigent mothers to pay a fee in order to appeal the termination of their parental rights. In Eisenstadt v. Baird, the court invoked both principles to invalidate a prohibition on the distribution of contraceptives to unmarried persons, but not married persons. And in Skinner v. Oklahoma, the court invalidated under both principles a law that allowed sterilization of habitual criminals. In Lawrence, the court acknowledged the interlocking nature of these constitutional safeguards in the context of the legal treatment of gays and lesbians. Although Lawrence elaborated its holding under the Due Process Clause, it acknowledged and sought to remedy the continuing inequality that resulted from laws making intimacy in the lives of gays and lesbians a crime against the state. Lawrence therefore drew upon principles of liberty and equality to define and protect the rights of gays and lesbians, holding the state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. This dynamic also applies to same-sex marriage. It is now clear that the challenged laws burden the liberty of same-sex couples, and it must be further acknowledged that they abridge central precepts of equality. Here, the marriage laws enforced by the respondents are in essence unequal. Same-sex couples are denied all the benefits afforded to opposite-sex couples and are barred from exercising a fundamental right especially against a long history of disapproval of their relationships. This denial to same-sex couples of the right to marry works a grave and continuing harm 
the imposition of this disability on gays and lesbians serves to disrespect and subordinate them. And the Equal Protection Clause, like the Due Process Clause, prohibits this unjustified infringement of the fundamental right to marry. These considerations lead to the conclusion that the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person and under the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment. Couples of the same sex may not be deprived of that right and that liberty. The court now holds same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry. No longer may this liberty be denied to them. Baker v. Nelson must be and now is overruled, and the state laws challenged by petitioners in these cases are now held invalid to the extent they exclude same-sex couples from civil marriage on the same terms and conditions as opposite-sex couples. Part 4 There may be an initial inclination in these cases to proceed with caution, to wait further legislation, litigation, and debate. The respondents warn there has been insufficient democratic discourse before deciding an issue so basic as the definition of marriage. In its ruling on the cases now before this court, the majority opinion for the Court of Appeals made a cogent argument that it would be appropriate for the respondent states to await further public discussion and political measures before licensing same-sex marriages. Yet there has been far more deliberation than this argument acknowledges. There have been referenda, legislative debates, and grassroots campaigns, as well as countless studies, papers, books, and other popular and scholarly writings. There has been extensive litigation in state and federal courts. Judicial opinions addressing the issue have been informed by the contentions of parties and counsel which, in turn, reflect the more general societal discussion of same-sex marriage and its meaning that has occurred over the past decades. As more than 100 amici make clear in their filings, many of the central institutions in American life, state and local governments, the military, large and small businesses, labor unions, religious organizations, law enforcement, civil groups, professional organizations, and universities have devoted substantial attention to the question. This has led to an enhanced understanding of the issue, an understanding reflected in the arguments now presented for resolution as a matter of constitutional law. This has led to an enhanced understanding of the issue, an understanding reflected in the arguments now presented for resolution as a matter of constitutional law. Of course, the Constitution contemplates that democracy is the appropriate process for change, so long as that process does not abridge fundamental right. Last term, a plurality of this court reaffirmed the importance of the democratic principle in Schutte v. B-A-M-N. 
noting that the right of citizens to debate so they can learn and decide and then, through the political process, act in concert to try to shape the course of their own times. Indeed, it is most often through democracy that liberty is preserved and protected in our lives. But, as Schutte also said, the freedom secured by the Constitution consists in one of its essential dimensions of the right of the individual not to be injured by the unlawful exercise of governmental power. Thus, when the rights of persons are violated, the Constitution requires redress by the courts, notwithstanding the more general value of democratic decision-making. This holds true even when protecting individual rights affects issues of the utmost importance and sensitivity. The dynamic of our constitutional system is that individuals need not await legislative action before asserting a fundamental right. The nation's courts are open to injured individuals who come to them to vindicate their own direct personal stake in our basic charter. An individual can invoke a right to constitutional protection when he or she is harmed, even if the broader public disagrees, and even if the legislature refuses to act. The idea of the Constitution was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy, to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials, and to establish them as legal principles to be applied by the courts. This is why fundamental rights may not be submitted to a vote. They depend on the outcome of no elections. It is of no moment whether advocates of same-sex marriage now enjoy or lack momentum in the democratic process. Issue before the court here is a legal question whether the Constitution protects the right of same-sex couples to marry. This is not the first time the court has been asked to adopt a cautious approach to recognizing and protecting fundamental rights. In Bowers, a bare majority upheld a law criminalizing same-sex intimacy. That approach might have been viewed as a cautious endorsement of the democratic process, which had only just begun to consider the rights of gays and lesbians. Yet, in effect, Bowers upheld state action that denied gays and lesbians a fundamental right and caused them pain and humiliation. As evidenced by the dissents in that case, the facts and principles necessary to a correct holding were known to the Bowers court. That is why Lawrence held Bowers was not correct when it was decided. Although Bowers was eventually repudiated in Lawrence, men and women were harmed in the interim, and the substantial effects of these injuries no doubt lingered long after Bowers was overruled. Dignitary wounds cannot always be healed with the stroke of a pen. A ruling against same-sex couples would have the same effect 
and, like Bowers, would be unjustified under the 14th Amendment. The petitioner's stories make clear urgency of the issue they present to the court. James Obergefell now asks whether Ohio can erase his marriage to John Arthur for all time. April DeBoer and Jane Rouse now ask whether Michigan may continue to deny them the certainty and stability all mothers desire to protect their children, and for them and their children, the childhood years will pass all too soon. Ipa Deku and Thomas Costura now ask whether Tennessee can deny to one who has served this nation the basic dignity of recognizing his New York marriage. Properly presented with the petitioner's cases, the court has a duty to address these claims and answer these questions. Indeed, faced with a disagreement among the courts of appeals, a disagreement that caused impermissible geographic variation in the meaning of federal law. The court granted review to determine whether same-sex couples may exercise the right to marry. Were the court to uphold the challenged laws as constitutional, it would teach the nation that these laws are in accord with our society's most basic compact. Were the court to stay its hand to allow slower, case-by-case determination of the required availability of specific public benefits to same-sex couples, it still would deny gays and lesbians many rights and responsibilities intertwined with marriage. The respondents also argue allowing same-sex couples to wed will harm marriage as an institution by leading to fewer opposite-sex marriages. This may occur, the respondents contend, because licensing same-sex marriage severs the connection between natural procreation and marriage. That argument, however, rests on a counterintuitive view of opposite-sex couples' decision-making processes regarding marriage and parenthood. Decisions about whether to marry and raise children are based on many personal, romantic, and practical considerations. And it is unrealistic to conclude that an opposite-sex couple would choose not to marry simply because same-sex couples may do so. The respondents have not shown a foundation for the conclusion that allowing same-sex marriage will cause the harmful outcomes they describe. Indeed, with respect to this asserted basis for excluding same-sex couples from the right to marry, it is appropriate to observe these cases involve only the rights of two consenting adults whose marriages would pose no risk of harm to themselves or third parties. Finally, it must be emphasized that religions and those who adhere to religious doctrines may continue to advocate with utmost sincere conviction that by divine precepts, same-sex marriage should not be condoned. The First Amendment ensures that religious organizations and persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling 
and so central to their lives and faiths, and to their own deep aspirations to continue the family structure they have long revered. The same is true of those who oppose same-sex marriage for other reasons. In turn, those who believe allowing same-sex marriage is proper or indeed essential, whether as a matter of religious conviction or secular belief, may engage those who disagree with their view in an open and searching debate. The Constitution, however, does not permit the state to bar same-sex couples from marriage on the same terms as accorded to couples of the opposite sex. Part 5 These cases also present the question whether the Constitution requires states to recognize same-sex marriages validly performed out of state, as made clear by the case of Obergefell and Arthur, and by that of Deku and Costura, the recognition of bans inflict substantial and continuing harm on same-sex couples. Being married in one state, but having that valid marriage denied in another, is one of the most perplexing and distressing complications in the law of domestic relations. Leaving the current state of affairs in place would maintain and promote instability and uncertainty. For some couples, even an ordinary drive into a neighboring state to visit family or friends risks causing severe hardship in the event of a spouse's hospitalization while across state lines. In light of the fact that many states already allow same-sex marriage, and hundreds of thousands of these marriages already have occurred, the disruption caused by the recognition bans is significant and ever-growing. As counsel for the respondents acknowledged at argument, if states are required by the Constitution to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, the justifications for refusing to recognize those marriages performed elsewhere are undermined. The court, in this decision, holds same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry in all states. It follows that the court also must hold, and it now does hold, that there is no lawful basis for a state to refuse to recognize a lawful same-sex marriage performed in another state on the ground of its same-sex character. No union is more profound than marriage for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect that idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. 
they asked for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit is reversed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.